Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and today we're here with Dr. John Manning, a botanist at the South African National Biodiversity Institute in South Africa. He's here today to tell us about a new species of iris that he and his co-authors have recently described. John, thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure, Zoe. I would love to start by asking you a little bit about your career and the work that you do. Sure. I've been working at the National Biodiversity Institute since I graduated from university in 1987. So it's, I think it's going on 40 years. <laughs> and my main fields of interest are the iris family. It's very well represented in South Africa and especially down in the Western Cape or the winter rainfall region, our, our area of Mediterranean climate. It's known as the Cape Floristic region. It was one of six floral kingdoms before the characteristic kingdom or floral kingdom. Um, but the iris family is, is, is very well represented here. We've got over 1,200 species in Southern Africa. So it's one of the, the big diversity regions for the family. And I think many people are familiar with the sort of purple and dark blue irises. Uh, is that what they all look like? Well, if you're Talking about many people, Northern Hemisphere people, <laughs> I'm afraid you're, you're pretty hard done by. You have iris, which we don't have. Um, and yes, those are mostly purple and they have a typical iris-like flower. There's a, a lot of other iridaceae in Central America, um, tigridias, which you may be familiar with. A few in Australia and then a huge diversity in South Africa ranging from very ancestral kinds, even shrubs, to a great deal of geophytic species, mostly deciduous geophytes, of all shapes, colors, sizes, forms that you can imagine. It's, it's incredible diversity here. And we're starting to get a handle on what's driving it or what has driven it in the past. And a lot of the diversity here is related to the pollinators, and particularly in the Mediterranean region where I'm living and working, uh, the capitalistic region, there, there is a lot of unusual pollinators. So sunbirds, long-tongued flies, rodents, um, butterflies, as well as the more usual bees, So, and moths, of course. So there's a great deal of exciting evolutionary biology going on here and Irish family reflects it both in the numbers of species we've got here and the diversity of their flowers so very exciting so the short answer is no they're not all purple <laughs> please forgive me for my uh my lack of knowledge I no, am so enlightened great. and uh you talked a little bit about the diversity within the iris family um 
But how do irises relate to uh, other similar plants? Mm, the nearest relatives are a few other small families. Uh, mon they're monocots, um, which is the, the big group of plants that includes grasses and palms and lilies. And the iris family is in a section of that called petaloid monocots. In other words, they have very nice flowers, which is obviously why they're attractive to people as well as pollinators. Um, we have quite a lot of knowledge about them because my colleague who was originally at the Missouri Botanic Garden, Peter Goldblatt, he and I have been working on them for 40 years with a lot of colleagues around the world. And we have a good understanding of the evolutionary relationships of the family and, and its evolution. Um, some of the ancestral kinds are, are in Australia and it looks as though the family migrated from Australia across to Africa and via the Northern hemisphere and then underwent an incredibly big radiation down here in the Cape. So a lot of diversity here and a lot of species. That's really fascinating. How would that migration have happened? Probably by long distance dispersal because our main radiation here took place about 30 million years ago. And that's long after we had Gondwana splitting apart. So a lot of these plants have fairly small seeds and it's most likely that the seeds were transported by migrating birds or possibly on the wind at some stage. So it's a mystery exactly how they got here. And the track is, their historical track is not, not visible any longer. And part of the way that you examine that dispersal is, is through genetics. And, and also, you yourself work in an herbarium. Can you tell us a little bit about what herbaria are and, and sort of what purpose they serve in, in the scientific community? Essentially, herbaria are the equivalents of museums of biological material. So they are collections of dried and pressed plants that have been collected and accumulated ever since people have been doing this. So depending on the focus of the herbarium and its location and its age, there will be collections there from local regions or international regions, and they may date back hundreds of years. So it's, it's the basic repository of biological knowledge. So our herbarium here has collections dating back to the early 1800s. Herbaria in Europe have collections dating back to the 1600s and anything after that. And those specimens constitute, as I say, the basic knowledge of the structure, the morphology, the distribution, the ecology of plants. And I can't emphasize the importance of herbaria in the study of botany. All of our knowledge or understanding, let's put it that way, of species essentially stems from herbaria. And they're critically important for conservation initiatives 
because they are the sole record of historical occurrence of these species and the existing current distribution of these species. So a lot of the locali localities that we have historical collections from, those plants no longer occur there. They're, they're extinct locally through various causes. Um, but some of the localities, they still exist there. And so they enable us to go and find these plants where they still exist and enable us to decide and determine what species are. Because I think my experience is that people don't really understand that in most cases, species are constructs that have been erected by biologists. We, we, yes, we have wonderful definitions of how they are, but in most cases, we don't have any evidence for that. So we construct these, these cons constructs and give them names to organize diversity in biology. So that sounds a bit complicated, but essentially most species are determined by the biologists that study those organisms. Those change over time as our knowledge expands and as we get more data. So herbaria are the only place where the actual organisms themselves can be found. In books and other resources is our interpretation of those organisms. But the herbaria, like, I suppose, museums or zoos, are the only place where the actual organisms are kept. So they're critically important. And especially in countries like South Africa, where we're still getting to grips with the biodiversity here. We, we, we know an awful lot. South Africa is an incredibly fortunate position. We've had intensive study by biologists and it's ongoing, but we still don't know everything. And we discover new species all the time, like this one we're talking about, we're going to be talking about now. And another thing, when we say we discover the species, that doesn't mean it suddenly appeared. It's been there, we just haven't known about it. So when we talk about species going extinct, that means they have disappeared and they cannot be recreated. These ideas I see in media now, of we're going to resurrect the thylacine or whatever these things are. But those are what they call proxy species. They look like the species, but they're not the species. So when they're extinct, they're gone. But when we discover new ones, that doesn't mean suddenly we're replacing the old ones. These new ones have been here. We just haven't known about them. So we're still finding new species here and herbaria play a pivotal role in, in that whole process, as well as conserving the species that we know about. That was beautifully said. I, I think you can have the podcast. I think it's your podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think one of the beautiful things that scientists bring to our collective study of taxonomy is that sort of assignation of meaning, um, providing alterations to this sort of like shared language in a lot of ways. Um, and I completely agree that right. herbaria and, and other types of collections are are absolutely critical because it's not just that interpretation, it's the it's the source material. 
And I, I'd love to ask you a little bit about that source material. So if I were to walk into an herbarium, what what would I see? What do these specimens look like? How are they preserved? Ah, okay. Well, if you walk into our herbarium, which is pretty representative, there are stacks and stacks of metal cupboards with rubber seals on the doors, and they look like storage cupboards. So when you open the doors, there are little cubby holes in there, and in each cubby hole are folders containing dried plant specimens that are attached to sheets of cardboard, about A3 size. And each specimen represents a collection that somebody made. They were in the field and they picked the plant or broke off a piece of the plant, depending on the size of it. And they pressed it flat so that it wouldn't shrivel up too much. And so they dried. So generally you preserve pretty well most of the morphology. So they dried them, flattened them, and then they came back to the herbarium and labels were printed, giving information where they found it, when they found it, what habitat it was in, and any other interesting aspects like the color of the flowers or the frequency of these plants or anything else that they can figure out about the ecology. And then that label is attached to the specimen. And then taxonomists' job is to go through these specimens and identify them or assign them to species and use them to describe or circumscribe these species. So you can imagine that if you were through a whole lot of a, a deck of playing cards on, on the table, there'll be red ones and black ones and hearts and diamonds and clubs and spades and all and then said to somebody, sort these. So that's what a taxonomist job is. We look at all these cards and we sort them into piles or suites of similar specimens. And when we figured out that these specimens are all similar enough, and, and how similar that is, is a moving target. But if they're similar enough to be considered one species, then they all get grouped in one cluster and we call them that species name. And that's how it goes. So we have thousands, millions of these specimens sorted in little clusters with names on. And each specimen has all this historical, ecological information attached to it by the form of a label. And so if you need to write a book on trees of the region, that's where you go because that will tell you where these trees occur, what when they flower, what their ecology is, what they look like, how they vary because some specimens from mountaintops might be more compact with smaller, thicker leaves than the ones in lowland environments. So you can build up all your understanding and knowledge of what these things look like without having to walk millions of kilometers through the bush yourself over centuries. So it's like a time machine that lets you get an idea of what organisms look like and how they, how they respond to their environment. Um, in addition to that, critically, if you, if you ask somebody, how do I know what name goes with what species? Well, I'll be interested to know what their answer would be because the name 
of a species is attached to a specimen. It's not attached to a concept because, as I said, concepts vary and change over time. So the name of every spe species is attached to a particular specimen, and I literally mean a specimen. So in our herbarium, there'll be lots, there are lots of these specimens to which names are permanently attached, and that's the only fixed reference point for that name. And those specimens are called types. And so why the types are so critical is that that's the place that that's the specimen that you compare all other specimens to. And if your other specimens are similar enough to that one, then you're going to call it that name. So those types are found in herbaria all over the world, and they are critical to fixing the application of names or determining what names are used for what species, because most species have got more than one name that apply to them because they've been named several times by different people. You can imagine 200 years ago, we didn't have a Zoom meeting. We didn't have electronic scans. So people were working a bit in isolation. Somebody is working in St. Petersburg in Russia and somebody is working in Boston in the US and somebody is working in Peking or Beijing in China. They may end up describing the same species because they didn't know that someone already had given it a name. And so we could have two or three or four or five names that now we think apply to the same species. But the only way of confirming that is to check those type specimens that each of those names is attached to. And that's what types are important for. So the barrier not only keep the record of biological diversity, they also keep the record of the names, the nomenclatural stability that we all rely on to organize this diversity. So they're very important. And on this podcast, I think listeners are accustomed to hearing us say, when, when we collected a specimen, usually it's the whole specimen. It's the whole lizard, the whole beetle. Um, what does it mean to collect a plant? Okay. According to the rules, and when I say rules, I mean the internationally codified rules. It's called the Code of Biological Nomenclature. In plants, you, you may collect the entire specimen, the individual. So if it's a little annual species or a bulb, you can dig it out, and it's the equivalent of collecting a lizard. You collect the entire plant, the entire individual. Or if it's a big thing like a tree, obviously that's not going to work. So you can break off pieces. The herbarium sheet can have one or more individuals or one or more pieces on it. And together they form the specimen or the, or the collection. Yeah. So some of our herbarium sheets have got six or seven little individual plants on them and others only have a piece of a branch. And I, I suspect this might be sort of uh, up for debate, but how much of a plant would you say is necessary for the description of a new species? Or is it certain parts of a plant? What is that distinction? It's a great question and it depends on the group. Like most of life, everything depends. Yeah, it, that depends, we always say. So in, let's take an example now, this, this new iris, they very, the individuals are tiny. I mean, literally they're 
in your terms, an inch high. So there's a little bulb or a corm in this case, about the size of a, what, a pea. And there's a few little narrow leaves that sprout out from this and some little flowers that are about the size of a, I don't know, dime, 10 cent piece in diameter. So they're very small. So in, in that group of irises, the shape of the leaf is important and the details of the flowers are important. Um, also, some of the details of the bulb are important. So you need all those parts to really accurately and adequately describe and name that, that species. But in another group of irises, for instance, the bulbs may all look the same, then the leaves may all look the same. So in which case you don't really need all of that, that part of it to make your call on whether it's new or not, but you need the flowers or in some cases, maybe you need the seeds. So depending on the group of plants, you need more or less of the plant and different parts of the plant. So there's no simple answer. It all depends. Like so much in science, truly. Yeah. But but now I would love to turn to your new species. Uh, you, you've sort of started describing it, um, but can you talk a little bit more about uh, what it looks like and um, some of its distinctive characters that allowed right. you to describe it as a new species? Right. The, I'm really, really excited to be talking to you about this because the discovery of or description of this little plant illustrates a whole lot of, of features that are important. So I first became aware of it last year, in September last year. There's an online identification site called iNaturalist, and it's international. So people can post images of any biological organism onto iNaturalist and specialists around the world or interested keen amateurs will then can then look at those specimens and they can suggest names for it. It's also in, our, in South Africa, the repository for all our conservation information nowadays. So all our red listing is done based on those records rather than having to rely only on herbarium records. So iNaturalist is now starting to fill a very important role. It doesn't replace herbarium. It can't because all, you, all it has, all it hosts is images. So they don't go back to what we were talking about as the actual basic regional information on the organisms themselves. They just post images of those organisms. Anyway, in September last year, somebody posted an image of this little plant. Now, because uh, my colleague and I, Peter Goldbeck, have been working on the Iris family uh, for 40 years, we and we've two years ago published a complete account of the entire family. So we, we have this framework in which we can assess any sighting of an iris, which is very amazing because most plant groups don't have that, that knowledge base. So as soon as this, I saw this sighting, I knew this is something that I've not seen before. And I couldn't put it in one of our little species boxes. And I know the locality. Um, there was nothing known that matched that. So I was pretty sure even then that it was new because it didn't fit into the system. And so I contacted the person who posted it 
Alexandra Bella, and he gave me exact locality information for the thing. So I went out. And then this is where it starts getting into a saga. <laughs> this little group of irises, they're tiny, as I said to you, they're in about an inch high. The flowers only last for half a day. And to make matters worse, all the plants in a population flower together on one day, and then they all don't flower the next day. So when I went out there and following the GPS locality and exactly we, and searching, searching, searching now for something that's the size of a pinhead, basically, I found the plants, but they weren't flowering. They were little shriveled up flowers from the day before and some tiny buds that would come into flower in the next few days. So that wasn't any good because I could do nothing with that. But anyway, at least I knew where they grew. So this year, that was in September last year. So this year in August, I thought I need to go again. So we drove out again and it's a three hour drive. Went straight to the population and the same story. There were old flowers from yesterday and some little buds that were going to come into flower sometime. So it's really frustrating and the amount of resources and time that gets spent on this and, and you find the plants, but you can do nothing with them because the critical details of the flowers are not there. So I kind of started to think about this and there are quite a lot of irises here that do this. They all flower together and there's a common thing called dietes, which people grow in their gardens and they do this too. And over the years, we've watched these things and dietes all flower en masse. And a friend of mine used to say, it's before you get rain. Well, okay. So then we started figuring out maybe it's before cold front comes past. In other words, when the atmospheric pressure drops, because there's got to be some signal that these all these plants know that, that are going to flower now. So I checked the weather forecast. And, okay, there's a front coming. Got a friend of mine, I said, do you feel like going for a drive? And he said, sure. So we did. We went out to the site again. And unfortunately, it was pretty rainy and misty. But there all the flowers were, and they were all open. So it was great. So I could collect what I needed. I couldn't take photographs because the weather it was raining. But at least we had photos on iNaturalist. So I could collect the material that I needed to examine and determine what this thing actually looked like and draw up the scientific description so that other people could know what it looked like. And I could compare it with all the other little species in this group and try and make some sense of what was going on there. So I made uh, two herbarium type sheets, one for our herbarium and one for Missouri because it's good to spread the risk because if the type disappears, then you really up a creek without a paddle. And that's happened in the past. Herbaria have been bombed during world wars and all the types have gone. And so for many, many names, nobody really knows what that name refers to. So these names kind of float around and nobody really knows what they are because the types have gone. And the descriptions were not good enough in those days to actually accurately figure out what they applied to. But anyway, so that's the saga of this little plant. So then one writes up the description and you do it according to a protocol and it gets submitted to a scientific journal and it goes through a refereeing process and 
they, they may ask you to make changes or not. And then finally, it's accepted and it's published and then the name becomes available and it becomes validly published and it can be used for this space, for the species. So that's the, the long story for a little small plant. But it sounds like it deserves every bit of that effort that you gave. Um, uh, that's tremendous. <laughs> and, and what's also interesting, as I said, as I said, iNaturalist alerted us to it. It didn't provide the specimen, but at least we knew there was something out there. The other really interesting thing is that these plants are growing along a hiking trail and a really well-used hiking trail. So people must have walked past them thousands of times in the past, and either they weren't flowering or be they're so small that people didn't take notice of them, and that's, I suspect, the case for many new species. They're, uh, they're just walk past and people don't realize they're new because they don't have a flashing light saying, describe me, I'm new. You know, you need to know what you're looking at before you can come to any conclusions about it. So A, that was INAP. B, it was very, very easy to get to. If it had been on top of a mountain with a three-day hike, it took three trips to go and get this thing, but at least one could drive there and then walk a few hundred meters. If it was hiking up the mountain, it wouldn't have been feasible. So there were those two aspects of it. And there was also the aspect that because of our intensive study of the family, we could recognize instantly that this was something new. So if those three or four um, characteristics don't all coincide, species remain unnamed or unrecognized for, for, for decades or even longer. And there will be many instances where undescribed species are have been collected in the past and they're sitting in herbaria, but there's not the knowledge base from, they're not specialists around who are able to identify them as being something new. So that's why herbaria keep, they're like unexploded bombs lying there. They're, they're waiting for somebody who has the knowledge to pick up on it. They're absolutely tremendous and, and indispensable resources. Um, mm. That, mm. that brings us perfectly into the last question. Um, why is the description of new species important and why do you think your discovery matters? Yeah, it's a question I've grappled with too. A while, a few years, years ago, we did an analysis of species that have been described in the capillaristic region. And we looked at the rate at which species were have been described in the last 250 years, in other words, since formal taxonomy began in the 1750s, in the groups that are particularly characteristic of the Cape flora. And the number of species that have been added to that flora every year since 1750 has remained constant. So we intuitively thought the number would go down. Well, it's remained the same. Proportionally, obviously, they make up less of the whole flora because we know with the number of plants we know about are much higher. So if you add five every year to a growing number, the proportion is less. But it's still amazing to me that about 10 new species are described or discovered and named in our flora. 
We then looked at the characteristics of those species. In other words, were they particularly bulbs or did they were they post-fire flowers or were they shrubs or, or what were they? And it wasn't linked to any particular type of plant. What it was linked to was that the species that are being discovered now or most recently are very local. They're, they're stuck to one little locality. And that's the characteristics of the Cape Flora. There are high numbers of really local species. And those are the species that are most at risk of going extinct because you wipe out one small piece of, of, of land and that's the entire population of the, that species that's gone. Whereas if the species is more widespread, you can wipe it out in parts of its range, but it still exists in other parts of the range. So in terms of our flora, we still don't know it very well. Well, we know it well, but not completely, let's put it that way. And the number of species at risk of extinction in the Cape flora is one out of three. So 30% of our flora is facing some risk of extinction. And so adding new species, knowledge of new species to that scenario helps us identify which parts of the country are most at risk or, or house the highest numbers of species. So that's in a general way. More specifically, it highlights the excitement of living stuff to the community. People somehow, humans in general, love making discoveries. So when there's a new species discovered, it creates headlines because it's, it amplifies the fact that there's novelty out there and we can make a difference by learning about it. So it raises the profile of the whole issue when when you, this podcast, like you're doing, highlights the fact that there are new species being discovered. And if you watch any biological documentary, whether they're diving into the oceanic trenches or the Mariana Trench, the excitement of finding something new is always highlighted. Oh, that's the first time we've seen the coelacanth in 50 years. Or, oh, that's a new species of polychaete worm or whatever it is. People love to make discoveries. And so new species act as ambassadors for that whole process. And they, as I say, that's a sociological thing, but they also enable us practically to identify parts of the country that contain the highest number of species and are therefore most in need of conservation. So it's a multi-factor thing. Practically speaking, we know very little about most of our species. We don't know what they're used for. We don't know what they're useful for. We don't know what roles they play in the ecosystem. We don't know how important they are for our survival. So there's a lot we still need to know about stuff we know about, let alone the stuff we don't know about, the species we don't know about. Um, but it's all part of the whole process of trying to understand how we linked in with the environment and how changing that environment is going to impact on us. And I, I mean, I may be a bit controversial here, but people saying, oh, well, the climate's been much hotter and drier in the past is no reason to sit back and let it happen now because we weren't around in the past and we didn't have to survive those changes. Well, we are here now and we do have to survive these changes. And it doesn't matter what's causing them, but we need to know how to deal with them. So whether we're causing them or 
they're naturally caused is actually irrelevant to the effect they're having on us. So learning about our environment and learning to live in our environment is critical to our survival. Um, and describing and learning about that environment involves describing new species. So the iris family is a, is a flagship family for this whole process in the Cape particularly. And it's been instrumental in recognizing areas of endemism and areas of diversity and areas of high biodiversity and areas under threat. So adding to that whole knowledge base is critical for all those things that I mentioned, which really boils down to our survival. It can't be more important than that. <laughs> I completely agree. And something also that compels me about your paper and the, the work that you and your co-author did to describe this species is that it's not just the description or it's not just the discovery of, of one person. It's really the discovery of lots of different people, um, including the iNaturalist community yeah. and the work of Alexander, who brought it to your attention and the work of other people who, you know, care for the herbaria and curate the herbaria and um, all sorts of other pieces of the story. No, exactly. Exactly. The, the, the... Science is not a one-man show. We, we, we rely on so many we administrative people and technical people to process, do the work, analyze the work. It's a, it's a team effort. Um, and scientists are, are trained by the community and their impact affects the community and they're affected by the community. So we're, we're part of the community. And uh, the last thing I wanted to say is that uh, Identifying and finding new species relies on a huge amount of work from people who've been out into the field. One individual can't go out and cover all that area. So the herbaria are, are kind of historical tracks, basically, of people who've traveled in the past. So they look static and they look like dead plant specimens, but they, they represent a great deal of life. That's tremendous. I I love that so much. And I think it's true for, for all types of collections. Of course. It's, it's such a privilege to be able to to work with those collections and um and also to to speak with you about yours. It's been a real pleasure, I really it's it's wonderful. Thank you for contacting me and and setting this up. And thanks to all the people who watch these podcasts. Uh, it's much easier for people to go into a museum and relate directly to artifacts made by people because the, the circumstances surrounding that are familiar. It's a lot more difficult for them to go into a herbarium, for instance, or a, or a museum of natural history and, and get the same kind of understanding of the circumstances around those exhibits. So these podcasts help that. Thank you so much. That's the hope. Dr. John Manning's paper, Morea saxatilis, a new montane species from the Groot Winterhoek Wilderness Area of the Cape Floristic Region, South Africa, is in Volume 165 of the South African Journal of Botany. To learn more about John and his work, you can check out the website for the Kirstenbosch National Botanical Gardens Compton Herbarium. Link in the description. He also encourages you to learn more about the CREW program, which stands for Custodians of Rare and Endangered Wildflowers. CREW is a citizen science initiative that links South African citizen scientists and their local conservation agencies and engages them in the surveying, monitoring, and conservation of plants.
This link can also be found in the description. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks goes to Britt Shapak, who graciously hosted me during our local power outage so I could record this episode. Many apologies to her cat, Ted, who I have no doubt traumatized in the process.